I love that creed. And uh, those of you who don't, just repent, keep saying it. <laughs> we have a real treat coming up in the next uh, three weeks. Um, uh, we've asked, uh, uh, thought about February, sort of a relationship month, and because we have world-class uh, relationship uh, uh, teachers in, in both Pastor Brent and Janice, who are actually counselors and have a wonderful counseling thing. They're going to be spending three weeks with us teaching our relationships to start next week, so please be here. You're going to love that. All right, this morning, if you have a scripture, you want to open up to Luke 4, if you want to watch on the screen, or you have your, your smartphone or something, you want to open up your Bibles on that. Let's look at this text. We're going to re- it's just a small, small little story, uh, vignette of the life of Jesus. It says in starting in verse 14 of Luke 4, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Good little habit, going to church. And he stood up to read. The scroll on the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, eyes of everyone fixed on Jesus, and he began saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, all had been speaking well of him, were amazed at his gracious words that were coming from his lips. But at this moment, they're thinking, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum and other places. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his own hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, someone far away, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, only this pagan Naaman dude, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue freaked They were ticked. They were furious when they were, Jesus is suggesting, you know, well, what are you suggesting? They got out, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to murder him. They're going to murder Jesus, throw him down the cliff. But Jesus walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, as we march to Easter, we're taking a closer look in our normal sessions of talking uh, at the life of Jesus. Sadly, some of us evangelicals are a little fuzzy on Jesus. We sure love the Bible. Sometimes I think we love the Bible more than Jesus. And we love reading the words of Paul or James or Peter more than we love hearing the words or the stories about Jesus. For years, I avoided the Gospels, I'm sad to say. I really like the epistles. 
I mean, they're, they're rooted in theology and principles of life and faith. And I, I loved hearing about those more than I loved hearing about Jesus and the Gospels. Because at first blush for me, Jesus was always seemed a kind of odd. Um, his words were often just really strong, you know, unqualified, a little confusing to me. And he used to make me uncomfortable when I listened to him. He, he seemed, I mean, I knew he was Lord, but it, I felt like he was maybe just, it was never articulated, but it's almost like he was so Lordish, so otherworldly-ish, that, that maybe he was more in the air. And maybe that explained why, you know, in the middle of conversations, it seemed like he'd change horses. Or, you know, it felt like some of the train of thought he had was a little disjointed. He was my savior. I sang songs to him. I prayed to him. But for a long time, Jesus was a little peripheral in my faith. I wanted to focus on principles. I want to focus on truth. I want to focus on the word of God, not realizing that he was the word of God. I was guilty of what Dallas Willard explains in a book he wrote called The Divine Conspiracy, which, is, which should be in your library. It's a slap your mama book. Let me quote from him, quote, very few people today find Jesus interesting as a person or of vital relevance to the course of their actual lives. He is not generally regarded as a real-life personality who deals with real-life issues, but is thought to be concerned with some feathery realm other than the one, the one we must deal with and must deal with now. And frankly, he is not taken to be a person of much ability, he is automatically seen as more as, as a more or less magical figure, a pawn or possibly a knight or a bishop in some religious game, who fits only within the categories of dogma and of law. Dogma is what you have to believe, whether you believe it or not. And law is what you must do, whether it is good for you or not. What we have to believe or do now, by contrast, is real life, bursting with interesting, frightening, and even relevant things in people. Now, in fact, Jesus and his words have never belonged to the categories of dogma or law. And to read them as if they did is simply to miss them. They're essentially subversive of established arrangements or ways of thinking. That is clear from the way they first entered the world, their initial effects, how they're preserved in the New Testament writings, and how they live on in his people. He described his words as spirit and life. That's his dogma, right? They invade our real world with a reality even more real than it is, which explains why human beings then and now have to protect themselves against them. In his case, quite frankly, presumed familiarity has led to unfamiliarity. Unfamiliarity has led to contempt, and contempt has led to profound ignorance, end quote, about Jesus. See, the problem is, I think, that we don't know how to read Jesus. His teachings come across so absolute and oftentimes so unexplained. And, and because we don't know what to do with them, we sort of recuse ourselves from them. <laughs> the truth is Jesus is easy to listen to. You hear his words and they're at once gracious and at the same time they can be abrasive and intrusive. Listen to this. Here's a sample. This is Luke 12. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. How many think that's sweet? How sweet. The very next verse, sell your possessions and give them to the poor. <laughs> Oh, 
What? I mean, no qualifications exactly who's to do this, when they're to do this, to what extent they're to do it. He just throws it out there just to freak us out. Here's another place. Matthew 10. And even the hairs on your head are numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth so much more than sparrows. How sweet is that? Three verses later. But don't suppose I've come to bring peace or anything like that, which is exactly what we supposed. I did not come to bring peace. I came to mess things up. I've come to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, though that normally happens on its own. A man's enemies... A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. What? Anyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, you read this, and it's odd. You know, wait a minute, whoa, 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 Jesus. I thought you were the prince of peace. I thought you were loving. What are you doing to me? See, you're just messing with me. I, I thought we were supposed to get along with each other. I thought that was the point. We're supposed to get along with our families, love our family. What are you doing? See, confusing. Here's another Jesus confusion. Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, hold on, Nelly. I mean, I prayed the prayer. Lord, Lord. And Paul? Paul said, if I confess Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, that I'm saved. Right? But Jesus said, not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only he who does the will of the Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not in your name cast out demons, perform miracles? Let me use some charismatics in here. <laughs> then I will tell them plainly, dude, who are you? I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, I read stuff like this, and Jesus is making this evangelical nervous. And my first thought is, where is Paul when you need him? (laughs) I mean, Paul, couldn't you talk with Jesus on this point? I mean, Jesus should have gone to Bible school. (laughs) Here's Willard again. Quote, The most telling thing about the contemporary Christian is that he or she simply has no compelling sense that understanding of and conformity with the clear teachings of Christ is of any vital importance to his or her life. And certainly not that it is in any way essential. We, including the multitudes who have distanced themselves from any formal association with Jesus, still manage to feel guilty when we read him with reference to those teachings, with a kind of a nervous laugh. <laughs> Go sell all you, you have. <laughs> or a knowing look, like he doesn't know what he's talking about. But more often than not, I think such obedience is regarded as just out of the question or impossible, end quote. So what's the story? See, I think the secret about reading Jesus is to recognize he often speaks in extremes on purpose. Not because he's trying to create laws that are to be followed, that in every case, every person is to give everything he has away to the poor. He's not trying to establish these absolutes. In fact, I think what he's doing, he's just trying to create moments in us that when he says stuff like that, he just looks at us, freak out. 
I think he likes to mug us. There are God muggings. Any of you that have walked with Christ know you've been mugged by God. Where God arrests you, throws you down and says, you're thinking wrong, right? Paul, the apostle, actually Saul, this is before he's called the apostle. He's on his way to Damascus. He's killing Christians. He's presuming that he's doing God's work. And God knocks him down, blinds him. Jesus knocks him down and blinds him. He got mugged by Jesus. What's the point of a mugging? You don't always know what they take. It's just you've been mugged. You're like, I've been mugged. I mean, what they take? I don't know, but I've been mugged. See, we're freaked out by the fact we got mugged. That's Jesus. He's like some mug us. <laughs> when we face one of Jesus saying, like, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor, we should welcome the awkwardness of that moment. We should welcome uh, kind of that sense of what, ponder, what does he mean? Is, is he being literal? What? Is he asking me to do that? He he didn't tell everyone to do that, just some. But am I one of the some? Would I be willing to do that? If I did that, would I be willing? How would I live? How would this work? All of that kind of... That's exactly what he's after. (laughs) He says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, gets into heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father... I think he wants us to go, what? I think he wants us to say, well, wait a minute. It's not about performance, right? You know, maybe it's about more of a consistent openness to God. Maybe that's what he's getting to. Am I open? Am I, am I taking my eternal security for granted? Is faith this simple prayer of salvation that I prayed? Or is it like an ongoing messy interaction between God and humanity that sort of demands a continual yes before God? Is that what discipleship is? What are you saying to you? I think he just loves to stir us to think. I think that's what Jesus brings. There are a lot of compelling answers to the seeming riddles that Jesus brings. That's the stuff of doctrine. That's the stuff of theology. And I love that stuff. I love clarity. I love apologetics. But what if the point of encountering Jesus is simply the tension or the crisis he creates, apart from doctrinal discourse, apart from clarity and theology? What if he is just, his role is to bring that moment of inner conflict where we have this sense of awkwardness where we go, would I be willing? Am I willing? Am I right in how I think about my faith? Am I right in how I think about my life? Because when you read Jesus, that's what normally happens. What if he comes to us as one standing with us and for us, and yet as one who challenges us to our core? Challenges our selfishness. Challenges our commitment to autonomy instead of learning to rely on each other. Challenging not only that we have strengths, but that our strengths have weaknesses. I mean, if you're a really principled person, you're probably kind of a pain on the other end. A little bit too particular and specific, right? And if you're a person that's very empathetic, you're probably a quiche eater on the other side, always wanting your flaky crusts and everyone feeling wonderful. And you're a little flaky yourself. (laughs) Some of us are justifying. We're always justifying our actions. Well, you know what? Not everything you do is justifiable. Not everything you do is problematic. You you know, some of your problem is just you're just a flat sinner. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's some of us, and I wish I wasn't in this camp, we're self-condemning. And he doesn't let me get away with that. I'm I'm not kidding. I wake up 
almost every day. And where my mind goes, it happened this morning. I, caught, I caught, catch myself a lot. There's a lot of times I don't catch myself. First thing I'm doing when I'm waking up is I go through the last couple of days to find the places where I was wrong. And I beat myself. I found one yesterday afternoon. Had this attitude thing going on. I found it. And I started pondering. And I said, well, because he's the one that looks at me and challenges me with this idea. Neither do I condemn you. I don't care what you've done. I do not condemn you. Now, he didn't say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin some more. (laughs) Right? He said, neither do I condemn you. You're an idiot to be true. (laughs) But neither do I condemn you. Go and sin some more. No more. (laughs) I was talking about you justifiers. (laughs) Go and sin no more. See, the reality is he told us to forgive each other 70 times 7. A day, 409 times a day. That means you cannot wear him out. Sin is not a problem. He will not let you condemn yourself, be self-abnegating, self-deprecating. He will not let you do that. He wants you to know that even though you're an idiot, you are, but he does not condemn you, and he's gonna say to you, go and sin no more and give you grace to do that, even though you might do it in two minutes later and be a stupid idiot, and he'll say, you are an idiot. Yes, but neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, and he'll keep doing it every time you're an idiot. He will not back down. He loves us. Jesus loves losers. So Jesus comes to us as one like us, and yet he's so unlike us. (laughs) What if the whole point of Jesus is that he is subversive? He's like an elder brother. That's how the scripture compares him, an elder brother. How many of you have older brothers? Are they not pains on some level? They're always kind of in your face, always kind of saying things to you. I mean, he is our Lord, our Savior, and gentle and sweet. But at the same time, he'll say, how come you don't have any faith? How long must I put up with you? Read Jesus. Sweet, loving Jesus, in your face, Jesus. (laughs) See, this is what I think. The church loved Jesus precisely because he was this way. They were fascinated by him. And he was famous to them. I mean, like Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa or or Billy Graham. I mean, he was famous to them. They were just caught up with thinking or hearing about him. They they, they knew that he had a wave of questions that he had left in their wake. And those early church people, they heard that he was born of a virgin. They go, what does that mean? It means that he's not just a normal human. They knew that he did miracles, so they knew God was with him. But then he not only did miracles, he changed the Torah. That's the, oh, that's, that's the law. He would, he would say, Moses said this, I say this. He would change it. Who can change the law? I mean, God gave the law. I mean, the only way you can change the law is if you were God. Is, is Jesus God? And as they wrestled through it, they began to realize He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's the Word. He's made flesh. He's God. But he's not just God. He's also man. And they wrestled for over 100 years, 120 years. What does that even mean, God-man? He's the God-man. They came up with this notion of hypostatic union, all the stuff that we believe and say in the creed. It took them hundreds of years to figure that out. But they were fascinated with Jesus. They knew that death couldn't stop him, which was wild to them. Nobody had ever beat death. They knew that he was alive and that he was the head of the new community, the church, and that he was actually in heaven still communicating with the church. And they were going, what is that about? (laughs) That was the reason they loved hearing the gospels. 
talking about Jesus. They'd lean into it. They were fascinated by him and the stories. That's why they loved, that was their whole interest in, in the old Jewish sacred texts. The reason they loved the sacred texts of the Old Testament was because they were looking for how they spoke of Jesus. They weren't trying to get an exegesis of the historical text. I mean, they might have been interested in that to some degree, but they re- their real interest was, how do they reflect Jesus? In fact, we find in Luke chapter 24, this is Jesus after he had been raised from the dead. He's walking with the disciples, and it says, and beginning with Mo, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them, that was their sacred text, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. They're interested in the Old Testament was how does it speak about Jesus? What the point is, they were OCD about Jesus. Most moderns aren't. We're interested much more in the personal stuff. You know, we call it solipsism. It's that, it's that notion of my personal enlightenment, my experience, I mean, my spiritual experience, and how I feel. That's what we're concerned about. Well, I've, I, I don't like that particular music because how I feel. That song I really like because I feel. <laughs> Ben, keep bringing the feel on. We're interested in finding happiness. I want to be happy. What is it? How can I live in a way that secures it? And we like clear teaching like Paul and James. We love those epistles. We can focus on the stuff we like. Most evangelicals I know don't read the Gospels much. So, the early church loved it. So let's go to our text because I should before I stop. And, and look quickly at this gospel vignette. Think of it as a People magazine story involving Jesus. <laughs> Maybe not as exciting to you as, you know, one on Brad and Angelina, but pretend it is for a minute. So here we go. Jesus, verse 14 of chapter 4 of Luke, returned to Galilee. He's under the power of the Holy Spirit. Something's up. Something's on him. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. I mean, he had their attention. And he taught in their synagogues and everyone was praising him. Something was up with this guy. They knew it. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So this is his hometown. This is, they're familiar with his family. This is a tiny little community. It's not very big. And his work is there as a carpenter. It's just a few hundred people. His work as a carpenter, they understood who he was. They saw him grow up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he took, stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to them. This, even these little synagogues had a scroll of the Isaiah. They didn't have all the time, all the, time, all the uh, law and everything because it wasn't written. Things were hard to get. But Isaiah, very popular book. They knew it. They understood it. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to them. Unrolling it, they found the place where it was written. This is all very familiar ground for them. They knew this passage was about the Messiah. The one he was about to read was about the Messiah. And there is like a high-pitch expectation of Messiah in that culture at this time. They hated the Romans, oppressing them. Messiah was going to come and knock them out. And not only was the Jewish community all in a buzz about Messiah, all their spiritual people were talking about Messiah, Messiah, Messiah coming, not only that, but around them, even the pagans. You remember the magi that come from the east? They had picked up on this notion that some ruler was going to rise. They, even the pagans believed that there was going to be a ruler that would arise that would rule the world. They were picking up in their own way some elements of God's movement toward Messiah. Everybody's freaked out about it. And so... <laughs> 
He picks it up and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. They love that because they're referring specifically to something called the year of Jubilee. That's the year. It never happened in Israel's history. It was supposed to, but it was the year when all their credit cards got canceled. The debts, I mean, <laughs> and, and their lands that if your mom, your pop or your you know, great-grandfather had sold his land sometime in that period, you got all the land back. They were excited. I mean, that means they get their stuff back from the Romans. They loved that option. They knew that Messiah was going to bring this. And so he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, sits down, eyes of everyone's fixed on him. And then he starts saying, today, this deal is done. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is claiming that he is the Messiah. To his hometown crowd, they aren't happy about it. This challenges their assumptions. They were looking for a Samson. I mean, somebody that, somebody that could, you know, grab the jawbone of a donkey and kick some Philistine donkey. Right? They were looking for a David who could slay bears and lions and root the foreign armies. They were looking for somebody, really, they, want, they were looking for someone that would kill some people for crying out loud. Right? They want to get their land back. And Jesus lifts the cat out of the bag. He says, I may not be what you expected, but I am the Messiah. And then he gives his job description right out of this text. We just read it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom. What do you say? Anointed me. What does that mean? He's upon me because he's anointed me. This notion of anointing means that somehow on Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit is on him. It's like Bernie down here. If, you know, he's enjoying his service here. And, uh, you know, sitting with his wife and everything's just sweet. But if I anoint him with Ed, it looks something like this. <laughs> and I'm just, see, I'm anointing him. And, you know, he wants to enjoy Pam. He's not really getting to enjoy Pam. He just, nothing much going on because I am anointing him. I am ruining his life. <laughs> We do have chiropractors in the community. I'll give you a card. <laughs> See, Jesus was anointed. God was on him and, and leading him to proclaim good news to poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners, to bring recovery of sight to the blind, release the oppressed, to proclaim this year of the Lord's favor. There was something on him. And... See, don't just think physically here. Physically poor, physically freedom of prisoners, physical healing for the blind, you know, all those kind of physical changes, even though Jesus did that kind of stuff. The Jews would have caught the metaphor. They knew it, Jesus did heal the blind, all that kind of thing, but his primary reason for coming was not to mess with just the physical world. The primary reason he came was to mess with what was going on spiritually in the lives of people. We, what was his goal? John 1 says it. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. See, Jesus came to address sin. Jesus' response to the evil in the world is to kill sin because sin is what created evil. 
Sin brought the presence of poverty. Sin in the world brought sickness and disease. Sin in the world caused people to be imprisoned or oppressed. But Jesus didn't just come to fix everything that sin had created. He came to destroy sin so that eventually everything that sin brought would eventually disappear. You deal with this, it's like the bubonic plague. It was caused by rats, right, that were carrying disease. And so they figured out, they weren't just passing out, you know, medicine to bubonic plague victims. If you get rid of the rats, you don't have to pass out medicine. That the very thing that was causing all of the pain in the world is sin. Yeah, his miracles brought healing. His miracles brought provision. His miracles brought liberty. But those miracles are only just signs of a world without sin. It's like if you're outside of Tulsa and you're driving in, it says Tulsa, 20 miles, Tulsa, whatever miles. It's a sign of Tulsa. It isn't Tulsa. It's a sign of it. Those miracles were a sign of a world that is to come. See, I used to think, but this world isn't that world yet. Why is this so important? Because I used to think that if the church did her job in preaching and prayer, that God would heal everyone right now, that God would prosper everyone right now, that God would make everyone happy here right now. And and don't misunderstand me. Lots more can happen than what we see. And God does invite us to trust him, pray for sick people and all that sort of thing. But don't be deluded. Read the gospels. Jesus did not heal everybody everywhere he went. Jesus did not, when he came across people that were poor, he would provide for them. But he said to his own disciples, the poor you will have with you. Oh, he didn't come to just eliminate all the poverty. He said it's going to be here. We're commanded to heal the sick. We're commanded to to free captives. But he also commanded us to care for the sick. Why? Because not everybody we pray for gets healed. We got to take care of them. We're commanded to, to, to visit the captives. Why? Because not everyone we preach to gets released. We've got to visit them. This, Jesus didn't come to eliminate all that evil had brought. He came to eliminate the cause of it all, sin. Eventually, the evil will be gone. But that job isn't done until the end of the world. Bad news. One day, it's all going to be dealt with. One day, all the dead are going to rise. Even death will be beat. And we read it in, in the culmination of in Revelations 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there's no longer any sea. That's metaphorical language in this kind of apocalyptic text that is referring specifically to evil. He's saying that one day there'll be no more depths of evil. It's not saying seas are evil. It's just saying that it represents it. And somehow there'll be a day when evil will no longer be pervasive. Where every blind eye will see, every poor person will be provided for, every captive will be set free, every dead person will be raised. It's coming. And where did it start? Jesus. See, he didn't come to live to fix everything. He came to die to eventually fix everything. Right? So then it says, I saw this holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. I like that. Loud voice. God is loud voice. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. See, I used to think, let's just do it now. 
If we just have enough faith, we can make the old order of things pass away. But don't misunderstand me. We can help. We can bring hope in a dark world. But the old order hasn't passed away, and it will not pass away until Jesus returns, and there's a new heavens and a new earth. Which means we've got some poo to deal with. Can I say that? Miracles now are like those toothpick samplers at the Cajun grill place at the mall. Did you ever go by there? And you're hungry? And they stab little chickens? You know what I'm talking about? They stab little chicken, they give you a little chicken piece. You know, you eat it, it never fills me. It was never intended to. It was a sampler of what's to come. Just a sampler. See, don't ever think that miracles are supposed to take care of everything in this world. They're always signs of a world that is to come. So don't get mad at God if every miracle doesn't happen you pray for. And don't judge God if you think evil is here and you can't figure out why is evil? How can there be such evil and there be loving God? You know who says that? Stupid people. (laughs) Because they're not thinking. And don't misunderstand me. Most of us don't think. We're moderns. We don't think. We're full of amusement. I won't ask you how many hours you spend watching television being amused or how many times you do video games being amused. Amusement is awesome. I like amusement, but amusement is a problem because it's amuse. Muse means to think. Amuse means without think. We are a culture of without think. Well, what, what do you think? I don't know. I, I don't like it. I saw this. I saw this thing on Dr. Phil, and then I read this thing over here in the paper, and this is what I believe, I think. I better preach and not meddle here. <laughs> Sorry. I'm usually not this mean. <laughs> Sorry. Well, probably I am this mean. I know you're this mean. Back to our text. It's better we end. This isn't the new earth yet. There's going to be trouble here. And the reason there's evil is because God's still working on it. And if you want to know why there's more evil, it's because the church isn't. You want to know the reason I think there are people starving in Africa this morning? It's not because of the devil, and it's not because God doesn't care. It's because we don't. We don't care. The drug problem in America, we don't care. We just want the government to ban things we don't like, like abortion or drug abuse or anything. We just want government just ban it all so we don't have to do anything. We don't want to provide opportunities for, you know, girls that have abortions. They don't have abortions because they're thinking, I would love to kill a baby today. Wouldn't that be great? You know what they're thinking? I have no future. I'm futureless. I have no options. I can't tell anybody because I will be condemned. I know personally evangelical parents who encourage their kids, kids, girls to have abortions precisely because they're in evangelical churches where if they found out that the girl was pregnant, that they would not be seen as good parents. So it's just better to sweep it away. You know why there's so much evil in the world? Because we're here and not crying out to Jesus more and engaging with people.
I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm supposed to be preaching. Okay, finish our text. Here it is. Luke 4. They said to him, surely you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, do in your hometown what you've heard in Capernaum. And then he goes into this whole thing, which really makes them mad about Elijah. And Elijah, we don't have time to go into all of it. I would love to. But he's basically just saying that God moves not on everyone. Uh, and then when he moves, not everyone gets it, is what he's basically saying. And they really get upset. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this because it's implying that they don't get it. And they got up and drove him out of town. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to murder him, throw him off the cliff. And then he walked straight through the middle of them, went on his way. These early Christians loved this story. And the reason was is because it thrilled them. They, they did not have Batman movies. They didn't have Superman movies. They didn't have, they didn't have you know, Spider-Man movies. They, and, and they just had stories that they heard. And here in the story, I mean, the mob is trying to kill them. The whole mob is trying to kill them. They've got him. They're bringing him over to them, throw him off the cliff. And as they're doing it, all of a sudden, the, says he, he just walked right through them. And they read that. You know, he just walked right through them. This whole mob, they're trying to kill him. He walked right through them and they couldn't grab him. Who was that masked man? And I'm telling you, I can just imagine it. They're listening to this part of the gospel. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, and they recognized it. I can just see them going, hey, hey, wait for it. And they read on. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Wait for it. But he walked right through the crowd and went his way. There had to be catcalls and shout-outs. Jesus, that's my Savior. That's my God. They had to be done. Man, they were Pentecostals. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> These guys loved this story because it, they, they had to remember texts like Psalm 18 where it said, you will save the humble people. You will, they used to sing these songs. You will bring down the haughty looks. The Psalms were actually songs and they would sing them. For you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness for by you I can run against a troop and by my God I can leap over a wall. See, these stories through the Bible were that people would get in trouble and they'd walk right through the crowds. And here's Jesus doing the same thing. And I can just hear, those of you that are charismatics, you remember that old song we used to sing from this. You know, and I can just imagine after they read this text, already going, "Woo, yeah, Jesus!" And then the band gets up. <laughs> I can run through a troop or leap over a wall. Hallelujah, Hallelujah. He's my power, strength in my power. He gives light in my something. He gives power to all. Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Well, he's the rock of my salvation. Now there is no condemnation. I can run through a truth or leap over a wall. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. They had a moment. See, I think we need to rethink our position on Jesus. I think we should be more interested in him than what Jennifer Lopez and the Kardashians did this week. I think Jesus is the word of God, the hope of the world, the reason we don't have to fear eternity, the proof that God loves humanity. We should read the gospel, not to extract laws, but to encounter and be fascinated by the person of Jesus. What would happen if we did that?